Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. Our passage today comes from Mark 6, verses 30 through 44. You can follow along in your bulletin, or it will also be on the screen. Hear now the word of the Lord. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place, but many saw them leaving and recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, this place is deserted and it is already late. Send them away so that they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. You give them something to eat, he responded. They said to him, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups and on green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. He took the five loaves and the two fish and looked up to heaven. He blessed and broke the loaves. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were 5,000 men. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Stephanie. Okay, Mark chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. This is a familiar story to some of us, okay? So my challenge to you as we think about this story is to use your Holy Spirit-empowered imagination to re-inhabit this story, to be there with the disciples and the crowd and watch what unfolds, okay? Remember where we are in the Gospel of Mark. The context here is important. Two important things have just happened. At the end of the passage that we looked at last week, Jesus sends out his disciples to do ministry themselves, to go out and do in the surrounding towns what he himself has been doing, to proclaim the kingdom, to heal the hurting, to free the oppressed. And based on verse 30 of our passage, it seems like it went fairly well. They come back eager to tell Jesus about what they taught and what they did and what they got to participate in. But in the passage between last week's and this one's, the passage right before this, King Herod executes John the Baptist. John the Baptist was himself a well-known herald of the coming kingdom. He was a close friend to some of the disciples and he was Jesus' own cousin, And King Herod viciously and unceremoniously kills him. It's the first martyrdom of this new kingdom movement, but it won't be the last. And so at the beginning of this story, it's not hard to imagine the swirl of emotions that the disciples and Jesus himself must have been feeling 
And to top it all off, everywhere they go, they're surrounded by large, bustling, demanding crowds. Verse 31 says, many people were coming and going such that they didn't even have time to eat. And so Jesus says to his friends, let's get away by ourselves to a remote place and rest. And so they get in a boat and they start off across the Sea of Galilee. And based on other accounts of this same story, we know that they were headed to a town called Bethsaida. You can actually Google Maps all of these places By the way, they were headed across the Sea of Galilee from the southwest to the northeast toward Bethsaida, and the eager, hungry crowd is hurrying along the coast, trying to figure out where they're going to follow them, to get there before them. And to get to Bethsaida on foot, they would have had to cross the Jordan River. That's why it's called Bethsaida, because it's Bethsaida, the Jordan River. And they would have had to cross it. (laughs) It's a nerdy Bible joke. They They would have had to cross the Jordan River to get there. And we know that that would have been near impossible at this time of the year. The river was high. And so it seems like what might've happened is that as they were sailing, at some point, Jesus makes the choice to veer back toward shore, to turn toward the crowd and to meet them in the wilderness between Capernaum and Bethsaida. Verse 34 says, when he went ashore, Jesus saw a large crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Two things that are both true, but that are hard for us to hold on to simultaneously. Getting away to rest with Jesus is the first and foremost priority of any follower of his. If you are a disciple of Jesus, getting away to a remote place to rest with him is the most important thing that you can do. And the love of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, when it gets into our hearts, it will begin to push us towards people such that we are busy and worn out with the work, with the ministry of loving others. Both of those things are true at the same time. And this is very important. Jesus is always modeling for his disciples and for us the tension of resting with God and loving other people laying down your life to serve them. And it's a messy tension, but Jesus wants you to wrestle with it in your own life. We want Hope Community Church to be a place that prioritizes resting prayerfully with Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you're tired, if you are busy, 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 if life feels chaotic and full of demands and sometimes you're so rushed that you skip a meal or two, then Jesus is saying to you, Come away for a little while and rest with with me. Not only is that not wrong or lesser, it is primary and it is better. And it might even be a moral imperative for you this morning to learn to rest with Jesus. But if you've been following Jesus for a while and maybe you've been at Hope Church for a little while and you've imbibed some of this prioritization of rest, but you haven't responded to Jesus' call to join him in ministry, to join him in the co-mission of loving other people, then he wants to say to you, my love ought to compel you to love and to serve others. Let love redirect your course even toward difficult and demanding people. Those two invitations of Jesus aren't at odds with one another. They actually go hand in hand because communion with Jesus will inevitably fill your heart with the compassion of Jesus and that compassion will motivate you to join in the co-mission of Jesus. And sometimes that commission will be so busy 
and difficult that it will wear you down such that you need more rest with Jesus. Right? It is a messy and beautiful cycle to get caught up in. It's what he's inviting you to. Now this story, the feeding of the 5,000, it's the only miracle of Jesus that is recorded in all four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell this story and they recount it in a very similar way. And did you notice the details? Did you notice all of the detail in this passage, all the little seemingly unnecessary bits of information? Jesus and his disciples are so busy they don't even have time to eat. The disciples say to Jesus, should we take 200 denarii worth and go buy bread? They scrounge together five loaves and two fish and the people sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties on the green grass. Jesus lifts up his face to heaven when he prays for the meal and they take up 12 baskets of leftovers. Lots of extra details and lots of eyewitnesses and lots of similarities between four separate accounts which is to say this story has all the indicators of a true historical occurrence. And that could be problematic for us because right in the middle of the story, there is a jaw-dropping miracle, an incredible miracle that Jesus performs. Mark's claim and the other Bible author's claims is these are true stories real happenings in history, and one such real happening was that Jesus fed more than 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. This, this passage confronts us with the claim of a real miracle. And so the question that we have to ask is, do you believe in miracles? And do you believe that a miracle like this really could occur? Right? Not symbolically, not metaphorically, but that Jesus really did this. C.S. Lewis has a lesser known book about miracles and it has a creative title. It's called Miracles. And if you have questions about whether miracles occur, I'd recommend the book. It's probably less known because it's a little bit heady. It's, it can be a difficult read, but it is very useful if you have questions about this topic. And one of the main points that Lewis makes in the book is that we often wrongly think about miracles as proof of a certain religion or a certain worldview. But in reality, your presuppositions, your worldview will determine whether or not you can believe in miracles. In other words, when we talk about miracles in the Bible or elsewhere, we often mistakenly imply that our worldview is downstream from whether miracles occur or not. But it's actually the other way around. We, we would say, if you can prove that miracles happen, I'll believe in the supernatural, but I know that miracles don't happen. And so I'm skeptical about the supernatural. Right? But actually, if there is a supernatural being that can and does interact with the natural world, then miracles can certainly happen. And if there is no such being, then miracles don't happen. We shouldn't expect them to. Right? So the reason that this matters is if you're here this morning, if you identify as a Christian and you would say, I know that miracles happen. I'm certain that miracles can happen. I actually want to push back against that just a little bit, and say to you, I want, I want to ask you, are you giving the difficulty of believing in the supernatural, the difficulty of believing the Bible, are you giving doubt its proper and healthy place in your thinking? I'm always encouraged when I meet another Christian who has the integrity to say, I believe in Jesus, and I think I believe in these other claims, but honestly, it's hard sometimes, and I have my honest doubts the only way that a person can believe any of this 
is if a supernatural God really exists and if he comes in and begins to impress the truth upon your heart, if you believe in miracles, if you believe the Bible, that has happened to you, right? God has convinced you of the truth of that and part of having a real relationship with a really existing God is that you can express your real doubts to him and to other people, right? That's not weak faith, that is real faith. That's honest faith, that is relational faith with the living God. Now on the other hand, if you don't identify as a Christian or if you would call yourself sort of a strict naturalist, that is the closed material universe is all that exists, and so you might say, I know that miracles don't happen. I'm certain they can't happen. Right? Then I wanna ask you the same question. Are you willing to give doubt its healthy place in your thinking? There are so many things that naturalism just can't explain. The mind, human consciousness, free will. If you are a closed universe naturalist, I wanna to say to you that I think you cannot come up with a viable answer to the question, is there anything that is special about humans that AI won't soon be able to do better than we do? Okay. It's a very hard thing to explain morality or beauty, much less self-sacrificial love from a naturalist worldview? Are you willing to be skeptical about your skepticism? Right. Now, if you wanna think more about that, get a hold of C.S. Lewis's Miracles book. Okay, it's a good book. I would love to talk to you about it if you wanna talk more about it. If that, if that whole little blurb there felt ethereal and uninteresting to you, that's okay too. You can come back now, okay? You can come back. Here's the point for us this morning, right? As we think about the miracle in this passage, the main question is not if it happened or how it happened, the main question is why? Why does Jesus do miracles? Why did he do this specific miracle? He doesn't do miracles everywhere that he goes and every chance that he gets and he always seems to imply that his miracles have a point. So why does he do this? And I think the answer is to give us a taste of the kingdom of God. In this miracle, he's giving these people and he's giving us through his word a taste of the kingdom of God. Remember, remember the summary of Jesus' message at the very beginning of Mark. Mark 1.14 says, Jesus went around Galilee proclaiming the good news. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. And whenever Jesus in, teaches in parables, he always begins with a statement, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And we could put that same statement on the front of each one of his miracles in the Bible as well. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is like an injured, long-neglected woman restored to the innermost sanctuary of intimacy with God. The kingdom is like a little girl raised from the dead, taken by the hand, Talitha Kumi, little girl, wake up. The kingdom is a simple but satisfying meal with the king himself. With his miracles, Jesus is saying, the kingdom is near, it's breaking in, it's invading, and this is what the kingdom is like. And I am its king, and this is what I'm like. Again, remember, this passage comes right on the tail of the story of another banquet. Mark 6.21 says, on his birthday, King Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. And Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, and she pleased Herod and his guests. Right, so King Herod hosts a banquet. 
And the point is to center on and to celebrate himself. And he invites the important men, the powerful men, the militaristic strategic guests that should be at such a banquet. And his, his own stepdaughter comes in and dances for them and pleases the men. But if that makes you uncomfortable, you're on the right track. You're interpreting the story the right way. And the banquet ends with a beheading, a head on a platter, a gruesome death. King Herod hosts a self-important banquet where everyone gets their fill of pomp and circumstance and lust and violence, but no one goes home satisfied. Now, King Jesus hosts his own banquet. It's not for the important. It's for the needy and the helpless and the hungry. King Jesus says, these people are important to me. It is certainly about Jesus, but not in a self-centered or self-promoting way. Instead, Jesus gives himself away to others in compassion. It's not a banquet where women are either excluded or exploited, but a banquet where women are dignified and highly esteemed by the king himself. And the meal is so simple. They sit down on the grass. It's a picnic. And Jesus prays a simple prayer And he distributes bread and fish and they eat together. But at the end, it says that everyone ate their fill and was satisfied. With this banquet, with this meal, Jesus is saying, this is what my kingdom is like. This is what I am like. Take and eat. Now, if you're paying attention, here's the hard part, okay? If you're paying attention... And if you are honest enough to admit it, when we ask the question, why miracles? And we conclude because the kingdom is near and the king, Jesus, is presiding over a good banquet, then the, the honest follow-up question, I think, is why no miracles? Right? It's the question that's really the other side of the same coin. If Jesus can do something like this, why doesn't he do the miracle that I desperately need him to do in my life? Right now, do you, I mean, do you ever wonder that? Do you ever consciously think it? I hope so. And I hope you ask a hard question like that. Right now, around the world, there are many people, including men, women, and children who belong to Jesus, who are literally hungry. Right? They don't know where their next meal is coming from. Why no miracle? Right, right now, in this church, in this room, there are people who are seriously sick or in chronic pain hurting deeply, or struggling with a sin that they can't seem to escape. There are crumbling marriages and children with disabilities and parents with cancer and people who are dying. Why no miracle? Many of y'all know that Brentley and I found out at the beginning of December that we had a late miscarriage. It was the second time that it happened to us in the year 2023. And I wasn't there during the ultrasound when she found out, and I'd I'd been to past ultrasounds where we had seen the baby wiggling around, and the doctor said, everything looks healthy, right? And so I asked if we could have a follow-up ultrasound just to confirm, and they scheduled it for about a week later. And I asked the doctor, is there any chance that you made a mistake here? And she very gently, very kindly, but very directly said to me, no, not really. But can I tell you all that every day in the intervening week, 
multiple times a day, I prayed, Jesus, please do a miracle. Let us go in and find a heartbeat and celebrate a resurrection with you. We will worship you for it, Jesus. Why no miracle? It's not a theoretical question. I'm not, I, I wouldn't pretend that I can answer that question. I certainly can't answer it satisfactorily for you. I kind of think that Jesus can, but I can't. But let me tell you three common answers that people give that I think are, are they're very common and they're well-intentioned, but they are incomplete. And then let me give you the one answer that I think might be the closest to the center of the bullseye, the answer that Jesus gives, okay? So one answer that people will give when you have a need or a deep desire that goes unmet is people will say, and again, well-intentioned, look at all the good things that God has given you. Look at all the ways that he does protect and provide for you. He didn't do what you hoped for here in this specific circumstance, but count your blessings. Practice gratitude. Look at everything he's done for you, right? And that's true. And that's not terrible advice, but I think it's incomplete and we often use it the wrong way. The problem is that that count your blessings mentality often neglects the reality that according to passages like this, Jesus can do more and he has promised that he will do more, right? So we try to numb our pain and sort of suppress our hunger by lowering our expectations for what Jesus can and should do. And I don't think that's what he wants. Another true but incomplete answer to the why no miracle question is because Jesus isn't here right now. The Bible does say that when Jesus is on earth bodily, he's doing something unique in history to show the inbreaking of his kingdom, but now that he is not here physically, physical miracles don't occur in the same way or with the same frequency. That is true. The Bible teaches that, but again, I think that explanation ignores some of the other things that Jesus very clearly says in the Bible, like, behold, I am with you always, right? The promises that he makes to be with us spiritually and to care for us and to bless us, Thirdly, sometimes people will say, the miracle that you need, the miracle that you desperately want is coming, but not yet, This might be the most common of the three, and I think it's probably the truest of the three. While Jesus was here on earth, he was performing condensed kingdom miracles, and so people saw feedings and healing and resurrection in short short order, but now that he has returned to heaven and he's planning the full invasion of his kingdom, the timeline of such miracles is much longer for us. We have to wait to see them. There is truth to that, but I still wonder whether we often use that explanation in a way that's mainly intended to dull our pain and to suppress our hunger. In the parallel account of this miracle in John chapter six, John includes a conversation that happens between Jesus and the crowd the day after. The dialogue the day after the miracle. And no one ever explicitly asks why no miracle, but I think that it's the question that's behind the entire conversation. In John 6, 26, the people come to Jesus and they say, basically, what are you going to do for us today? Right? And Jesus says, truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. In other words, in your quest to have your surface level hungers met, you're in danger of missing the point 
what my miracles are pointing toward. And so verse 27, Jesus says, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give you. And the conversation takes many twists and turns from there. I wish we could look at the whole thing. But eventually, they get, the people sort of, they get to the right request, kind of. John 6, 34, they say, sir, give us this bread always, or give us this always bread. Give us this eternal life bread that you're talking about. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I myself am the bread of life, the only one who can sustain and satisfy your soul forever. There, I think, is the most fundamental answer from Jesus to the question, why no miracle? He basically says, I am the miracle. I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will go away hungry, and no one who believes in me will be thirsty in the end. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In the midst of this excruciating life, full of suffering and disappointment and loss and deep hunger, the thing that Jesus wants to give you more than anything else is himself. More and more and more of the bread of life. And inversely, and I think this is especially important for those of us in this room who live in this place in South Charlotte at this time in history, the most unloving thing that God could do to you would be to meet all of your material needs and surface level desires in this life such that you go on comfortably and mildly satisfied, but you never feel your deepest hunger, which is hunger for the bread of life, hunger for God himself. Now, am I saying that things like uncured illness and broken relationships and severe suffering and even death are secondary and shallow hungers? Sort of. You thought I was going to say no, right? Sort of. I sort of am, okay? But don't hear me as minimizing your pain. Don't hear that as me minimizing the suffering in my life, which is brutal and painful and scary and excruciating. Rather, hear that as maximizing the goodness of Jesus, right? That can only be true if either our pain is smaller than we think it is, and we know that that's not the case, or Jesus is so much better than we think that he is. That is the promise of this passage. Here's how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So we do not lose heart, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The promise is that for those who come to Jesus with their hunger, with their need, with their pain, that he will even use suffering and maybe especially suffering as the context and the conduit whereby he gives you more and more of himself. Can I tell y'all that I I probably would have said that in a sermon a few years ago. I'm not sure that I would have believed it. I think I believe it now. I think I've seen it. I think I've experienced it myself. He gives us himself in the place of need and weakness and pain. He loves to give us more of the bread of life. 
if the question that underlies John chapter six is, if Jesus can do miracles, why no miracle? Then the question that underlies Mark six and really the whole gospel of Mark, and we're gonna see this more and more in the coming weeks of this sermon series, the question that underlies the whole gospel of Mark is, if Jesus is this powerful, if he's this in control, if he is this supernatural, why would he allow himself to be killed? It's a, same, it's, a, it's a different version of the same question. Why would the king choose the cross? And the answer is to save you, to claim you as his own, to save you to the uttermost, to give you more and more of himself, to feed you the bread of life with his own nail-scarred hands, to give you himself forever, starting now. By his life and death and resurrection, Jesus did everything necessary to bring you into the banquet of eternal life with God forever and today. And when this life feels like crucifixion, which it will, Jesus whispers to you, I have been there too. I went there ahead of you. I'm there with you now and I will never leave you or forsake you. I know what suffering is like. I know what death is like. I am experiencing it with you as you go through it, right? And one day when we experience real resurrection and healing and freedom and flourishing forever, we will say, these things are so good, but Jesus is better. Right? In his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior are 10,000 charms, but there's nothing as delicious as the bread of life. Jesus himself. And paradoxically, that's what this miracle is about and that's what no miracle is also about, tasting the bread of life, getting more and more and more of Jesus. Let me conclude with four applications, okay? Four applications. Anyone who knows anything about sermons to tell you four applications is too many, <laughs> right? I'm not gonna remember three and a half of them tomorrow, okay? So don't take all four of these and be like, I'm gonna do these perfectly this week, but think which one of these does God want me to grab on and take home in my pocket this week, okay? Four things. First of all, have you developed the spiritual practice of naming your deepest hunger to Jesus, right? Maybe you, like me, have been trained or have picked up some notion that we're supposed to come to Jesus leading with our propriety, we're supposed to come to him with our performance and our deservingness. Either Jesus, I, hey, I've earned this, or hey, I promise I'll pay you back for this. Or, Look how well I'm doing, Jesus. Would you please give me what I want? And that's not, that's not what this story is about. That's not what Jesus wants you to do. He wants you to come and tell him your deepest hurt, right? Your deepest disappointment. He wants you to name your deep hungers to him. And sometimes he knows you well enough and he is authoritative enough that he is allowed to say to you, the thing that you think that you're hungry for is not actually the deepest hunger of your heart. But he always does that in the context of messy relationship. And if you wanna know what that looks like, what messy relationship, messy prayer with Jesus looks like, just read any of the Psalms, right? It's the whole book of Psalms. Second, this story gives us it, it, it charges that line in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, it charges that line with new meaning, right? That if you don't know how to pray, a great place to start is with the Lord's Prayer. And that line, give us this day our daily bread, little children know how to pray it, and they love to pray it. And it does mean give us the things that we need today for our provision and our protection, 
But now that line is charged with new and better meaning. Jesus, give me more of you. Today, let me taste the bread of life. He loves to answer that prayer. Thirdly, if we believe this story, Jesus feeding the 5,000, right? I think that we will take the Lord's Supper more seriously. There's only one other place in the Bible where Jesus lifts his head to heaven and prays over bread and breaks it and distributes it. And it's at the Lord's Supper, right? And I mean, what if one of the ways that God wants to meet you in the midst of your pain and your loss and your doubt and your skepticism is with the sacrament of the Lord's Supper enjoyed here together as a church? He wants to let you taste Jesus there, and that's exactly what the Bible promises. If we believed that, would we take the Lord's Supper a little bit more seriously? Would we pay a little bit closer attention to what's going on when we're taking the Lord's Supper together? We might even prepare beforehand. Lastly, let's come full circle. Let's, Let's end where we began, okay? For those of you who have responded to Jesus' call to join him in ministry, to join him in the hard and often wearisome work of loving other people and laying down your life to serve others. Did you notice the wonderful little story of the disciples, the trajectory of the disciples through this passage, right? At the beginning it says, they're so busy that they don't have time to eat. And Jesus says, let's get away and rest for a while. And then he interrupts their rest retreat almost as soon as it begins to go back and serve the crowd some more. Right, and the crowds are getting bigger and bigger and it's getting later and later. And they say, Jesus, send them away. They're gonna need something to eat. And then verse 37, it's, I mean, it's one of the best lines in this passage and it's one of the funniest lines in this passage. Jesus says, you give them something to eat, <laughs> right? And they would have freaked out, right? They were like, I'm angry at you, Jesus, and I'm anxious about what we're gonna do. And you notice where they go first. Another important tidbit for us in this room specifically, they say, let's get some money together and go buy what we need, right? 200 denarii worth of bread and maybe we can distribute that around, right? Maybe we can hire some more childcare workers in children's ministry, right? Eventually they give up on that idea and they bring their meager resources to Jesus. Five little loaves of bread and he says, now we can get started. And they watch him multiply their meager resource into something infinitely better than they would have imagined. That's how ministry with Jesus works, right? When he invites you to join him, he doesn't say, I am inviting you because you are qualified and well-resourced. He says, I'm inviting you to learn your weakness and your dependence in a new way. And when you give up on buying and earning and achieving and performing and come to me with your meager resources and your weakness and your need and your anxiety and your anger, then I will multiply beyond what you could imagine, I'll do something through, the, through you that is incredible and beautiful. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this story. Jesus, we uh, can acknowledge with our minds and with our words that this story is true, but I confess to you that it is hard for me to believe in your miracles in the Bible, and it's hard for me to believe in your provision, your protection in my life, and very often it's hard for me to believe that you could satisfy me with your very self, with the bread of life, Jesus. And that's my prayer for myself and for everyone in this room. You would give us a taste of the bread of life and help us to taste that it is more delicious than anything this world has to offer and that you, Jesus, are with us in our suffering and can sustain us until we see you again face to face. We pray that in your name, amen.